Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. In association with Viatel Technology Group, IT leaders breathe easy with Viatel Managed Cybersecurity. Viatel.com. This is News Talk. Yeah, you're very welcome along to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, we'll take a closer look at the views, questions and appetite of Ireland when it comes to electric vehicles. The book club will be in to review John Ronson's So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And I'll dip into the mailbag to answer your tech questions. As always, if you want to get in touch, you can email me techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at jesskellynt. But... First, last Saturday, more than 12,000 people gathered at the RDS in Dublin for the Nevo Electronic Vehicle Show. There were cars on display, experts on hand, and the ringmaster of it all was Derek Riley of Nevo.ie, who's with me now. Uh, Derek, firstly, congratulations on the success of the day. For those who missed it, just remind us what exactly it entailed. Yeah, last weekend we had Nevo Electric Vehicle Show in partnership with Bank of Ireland in the RDS. And you, you kind of stand back and look at the regular media, talk shows, social media, all the rest of it. You'd think EVs were on the way out. You'd think they were the worst thing invented. But last Saturday it really proved a point with regards to the Irish public wants to find out more. And when you have hundreds of people outside the door queuing to get in before we open, um, we were like, OK, this is going to be a real jam-packed day and we weren't disappointed. Yeah, we should note that all other media, except for this show where you are on every single month telling us about how great EVs are. Um, I saw some of the coverage on, on social media and one thing that really struck me was the broad demographic of people who were in those queues around the block to get into the RDS. Just tell me a little bit about the who and the what and the why of those who went along. It was everybody. It was young, old and everything in between, families. So we did some exit surveys and surveys post-event. So we on the, so we sold out uh, 20,000 registrations on the day then because it was a free registration. Those who showed up, we had about 12,600 people show up to the RDS on the Saturday. Of that then we had, within that we had a debt, we broke down... 35 to 64, nearly 70% of our attendees were in that age bracket. So kind of a working age. Um, but there was retirees, there was young families, there was kids loving it. Uh, that would have been my dream day out if I was a kid, uh, a car show, but specifically an electric car show, Jess. Uh, and it was it, it really, it was great to see because some people thought it was a certain type of demographic of person, um, salary, et cetera, et cetera, that goes to these types of shows or that are interested in electric vehicles. And I think what the show showed was everybody wants to find out more. Uh, and it was a real education piece. Um, they mightn't have known that there were so many cars available. They mightn't have known the actual range. They mightn't have known exactly what happens if a battery fails. So there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there, apart from this podcast and this show, obviously. But joking aside, people just want more information. And when you can go into an, a venue and see a wide variety of electric vehicles and then on the stage all day, all of the different talks, whether you're thinking about buying new or used, um, we, we kind of covered it all and ticked a lot of boxes. And the feedback, as I say, has been phenomenal from both attendees and exhibitors. Mm. I'd love to know what were the, the kind of questions that were being asked of the different exhibitors? Because again, 
following yourselves on social media, I saw an awful lot of the big brands there and I saw an awful lot of people milling around and asking questions. Was it to do with the old school range anxiety? Was it to do with, you know, the 4.5 kids and a dog? What's the best model? Was there key trends that came out of the interaction that was there between the punters and the brands? It was very much all of what you've just said, Jess. So I'll start off with it was is there availability? Because when we started mm-hmm. recording this just a couple of years ago, we had we were in the pandemic. Uh, it was hard to get electric vehicles. So a lot of people went, you know what? I'm not even going to bother. I'm not going to have to wait eight, 12 months for a car. So it was, do you have stock or when can you have stock of this certain color, this certain trim level? So there was that. Uh, but then there was the questions like, okay, what's the WLTP range versus what's the actual range? Uh, mm-hmm. And we've talked about that before on the show. I've seen people walking around with baby chairs and booster seats to see, again, the 2.4 children. Will it fit in the back of these cars? And there's actually guys going around with their babysit, catching, uh, seeing if it'll fit into all the different shapes and sizes of EVs that we had there in the day. Uh, people were asking about residual values or used car prices. People were asking about warranty uh, and were surprised that, you know what, the average across the industry is seven, eight years. And so, again, they're hearing it down the pub, they're seeing it on social media, but when you go up and you talk to the experts, you're getting the real answer. And it wasn't just about the cars. How do I finance the purchase with Bank of Ireland? How do I insure it with AXA Insurance? People coming up to AXA going, do you insure electric vehicles? And AXA's answer is, we insure all types of vehicles, whether they're electric or not. And so, again, people didn't realise you could do PCP or HB on electric vehicles. So things that we assume people know, but you know what? Mm. It's the non-pressure environment. It's not walking into a single showroom in a dealership where you, on the day you had nearly 25 of Ireland's leading automotive brands with over 50 electric vehicles. The perfect day out because you're not having to go to 25 different car showrooms. You could do it all in one hit. Yeah, one of the stats that I was really interested in from your exit surveys were that 38% of people uh, who went along owned an EV and 62% don't own an, an EV. So as you said at the top there, that curiosity is there. And while there are plenty of articles and hot takes and pieces like this in the media, I guess that people do want to find that they just want to, I suppose, scratch the itch of curiosity when it comes to EVs and seeing what does actually work for them. Because I think, you know, everybody comes at things from a different vantage point, right? So when you are reading an editorial or listening to a discussion like this, we all have our own vantage points. So people are definitely EV curious. Yeah, and it was like colleagues and, and the team on the morning were like, Derek, this is just going to be your fan club. People who watch your videos and who drive EVs and want a selfie with you. Uh, and thankfully, that wasn't the case. It was very much, uh, as you say, 62% of people who showed up on the day don't drive an EV, wanted to know the differences, if any. And it's getting to the stage where it's not just, oh, that's an electric car, that's not an electric car, but it's just a car now. And very much like when there's people walking into a, a car show And it wasn't just cars. We had e-bikes as well there. We had uh, electric vans. We had scooters. So it was great. There was uh, lots of different mobility provisions all in the electric sense. Uh, We had go-car there for renting an EV by the hour. Um, But yeah, it wasn't just all the EV heads together to pat themselves on the back and talk about how great they are. It was very much an audience that wanted to find out more, talk to the actual brands themselves. Um, Yeah, it was really, really a great day of positivity of mm. real uh, of realistic questions and the correct answers is really what we wanted and get that education across we didn't 
it, we didn't want it to turn into a sales event. Lots of brands got test drive inquiries and we ran test drives on the day. Lots of brands took orders on the day and that wasn't the intention of the show. But if somebody wants to buy a car, I even had an email in saying, uh, will there be special offers on the day? And there were if you purchased or you put an order in on the day, there was discounted prices or there was stuff thrown in, uh, which I didn't think wasn't go was going to happen. But uh, there were real, real intent to find out more and to take the next step because people are looking at maybe not their next or they're in a certain vehicle at the moment and again with the exit survey you can see when they're thinking about purchasing whether it's 43 percent thinking about purchasing an ev in the next three to nine months but 50 percent of the audience looking to purchase next year mm. 2025 is only around the corner sure look and sure listen um let's just talk through some of the questions that people may have had because if you didn't make it along to the rds uh you're probably frustrated that you missed the opportunity but the, the question that you hit upon at the beginning there around the availability of evs because we know the covid uh the war in ukraine and a whole host of other global issues have impacted supply chains in every different sector do we have evs on demand now Yes, well, not on demand, I wouldn't say, but very much so. There is a, 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 there's no problem with stock. There's no problem getting the car that you want to get. And like anything, dealerships around the country and brands in Ireland will have an element of having certain types of models and certain uh, quantities of, of those models. If Jess is looking for a certain colour with a certain trim, with an unusual battery size, it may be required to be manufactured to order from Germany or, or from further afield, etc. So, yeah. The stock issue, I don't think, is a problem anymore. Not like this. And, and even back in the beginning during pandemic, because of the uh, semiconductor shortage, uh, you were getting mm. vehicles coming through without rear wipers. And so they were removing semiconductors in certain areas of the car that they felt that they could get a they could get away with. Whereas now those vehicles are coming to Ireland with a rear wiper on. And so or, or they might have heated seats now where they didn't have heated seats two years ago. So all of that kind of asking those types of questions and understanding what's the trim, what size of battery are we getting, what's the software version? Um, people are very educated and I'll hopefully take a bit of credit on that in the sense of whether it's reading articles or watching reviews. Um, an EV buyer seems to be a very educated buyer because it's a, it's a, it's a different type of uh, driving. It's a different type of fueling plugging it in rather than filling it up. Um, and so, yeah, those types of, do you have availability? When could, If I was to order one, when will I get it? Uh, and manufacturers, you know, it's a manufacturer's dream when you have that audience in that in, in one location asking those types of questions. Um, the other question that I've been thinking about a little while, about for a little while is, do you remember we were talking about the changes to the grant, the EV grant and so on? Has that impacted uh, EV orders and sales or did that come up as, as a issue or question for people on the weekend? We actually had SEAI as one of our panel discussions and they were on the stage. They're the government agency that hands out these grants. Um, and they were saying that a lot of people, just the clarity behind the reduction in the grant, who's qualified for the grant with regards to the price of the vehicle, but also then the uptake and uh, the sales of electric vehicles is is not as fast as it was because I think we've gone past that early adopter. We're going into the early mass market. So there is a mm -hmm. bit more convincing on it and shows like ours last Saturday is definitely going to help that. Um, the industry was on a bit of a, a, a bit of a it felt that there was a lot of negative press out there. But when you when you walked in and you could see thousands of people in the room, it really gave them a jolt on the arm. So the the question was more so 
is the grant already off the price versus or do I take it off the retail price or the price that I see advertised on a billboard or in the newspaper or online? Um, and the SAI were saying usually the manufacturers, because the manufacturer deals with all that. So if Jess goes in and buys an electric car tomorrow, the price that you see is already minus the grant. Um, and to answer your question, I didn't hear anybody asking about uh, is the grant going to be increased or anything about the grant? People were just taking it as the price is the price. The industry mm. itself has been very smart with regards to putting in the, the lowest price it will be because of the grant. Um, and that the price you're actually going to pay, I suppose, in essence of what it is. Uh, and that's exactly what you want. And it's not like you pay and then they get the money back. It's actually it's all included with the uh, that the dealership will look after it for you. Uh, the other thing that I love the language around this on your survey. So 72% of people wanted to learn about battery range. There's no mention of range anxiety there. Uh, was that something that has been fully squashed? Because I know that you're sick of talking about it. I completely understand and empathise. But did that crop up? Or are people just asking the questions that I ask you every month of, you know, if I wanted to drive from Dublin to Mayo, how strategic would I need to be? That type of thing. Yeah, I don't use that anymore, Jess. It's range awareness. Is, oh, is, oh, sorry, chicken. Sorry. <laughs> um, thank you so much. And so range awareness is still a thing. Absolutely. But uh, we have presentations from Apple Green Electric, um, a charge point operator, and, and talking about how many chargers that they're planning on putting in around the country. We also have talks from Zevi, Zero Emission Vehicle Ireland, the government agency that's tasked with, do you know what? This is our roadmap and this is what we're going to do. And we had Efo Grady talking about uh, this is the major motorway network around the country. And this is what we're going to have in place by this year, this many chargers. And so, again, that range awareness of, OK, if I buy an electric vehicle, 75, 85, 85 percent of the time, I'm going to be charging at home if I'm lucky enough to charge it at home. But if I do have to take that long journey down west or down south or up north, do you know what? If it's not there today, in the next six or 12 months, there's going to be these charging hubs along. So, again, answering the questions that people had about range awareness, but also how many charges are going in, what type of speeds of charges are going in. And then we had Michael McGrath from Zevi in the afternoon talking about, OK, Jess lives on a street without off street parking or Jess lives in an apartment complex. What's going to happen there? And him being able to answer the questions of, do you know what? We're looking at neighborhood charging. We're looking at destination charging. There are grants in place already for the apartment charging as well. So again, it's again for everybody a real sense of, OK, we're actually getting the answer now. And I know when these things are happening. Uh, and I'm the nerd just that has the alert set up across the country when planning permission goes in in a certain county council for EV charging hubs. But nobody needs that. But so on the day, we we're able to give it in bite sized, digestible chunks of information to say, if you're thinking about buying a car, you don't always have to go for the bigger battery because do you know mm -hmm. what? The four times a year that you travel down to Bamulet, there are charging hubs in Charlestown. There's another one being built in three months here. There's another one being built in 12 months here. And so everybody was like, oh, right, we now have the real information. So with the sense of enthusiasm that was palpable on social media from the event over the weekend and from the results that you have from your survey, why do you think there's so much cynicism and arched eyebrows when it comes to EVs in Ireland? 
I think it's definitely uh, people like to take a big stick out and pick a topic that they had no, no, a lot don't know a lot about. And you know what? I'm going to stick my oar into it there, and I'm going to cause trouble on social media and on whatever platform it is. And God love them, you know, and that's fine. But what I always say is, come along on the day, like people, because it was a, thankfully a, a free to register event. People were like, oh no, I wouldn't even take a free ticket off you. But a lot of people did take the free tickets, and a lot of people showed up on the day. And uh, I was away recently with, with Patricia, my partner, and we were sitting in a pub and having some food and some drink. And there was three guys at the bar. And one of the guys was a high stool uh, professor. And mm-hmm. he started talking about EVs and all the rest of it. And Jess, my blood pressure was getting higher and higher and higher. And Patricia turned around to me and says, don't do it. Don't go over and do it. Don't do it. And I didn't. But do you know what? People are smart, people are educated, and as much as you hear all these stories going around and things being shared, the real information is out there if you go looking for it. Over 100,000 people in Ireland are driving electric at the moment and getting on with it. Ten years ago, people were getting around the country with a very limited charging network and getting on with it. And so for whatever reason, people and we had it through the pandemic as well. We had the misinformation. We had the disinformation. Uh, you were great as well, just with all your clarity around what was actually happening, whether it's with the app, whether it was what, what government was doing in a technology front. Um, and I'm facing those battles on a, on a daily basis. But do you know what? All I want to do is raise the awareness and the adoption of electric vehicles. EVs aren't for everybody. But for the vast majority of people, an EV would be perfect. And it doesn't have to be a new EV. It could be a used EV. And again, we had panels on the day talking about what you need to consider and what you need to ask when you're going for a a used EV. There's some phenomenal value out there at the moment. Yeah. And like it goes without saying that there is plenty of great information up on Evo.ie. You can also listen back to previous chats that myself and Derek have had over the years because we do talk about pretty much everything from reviews of different models to how to winterize and winterproof your EV to apps that might help you get more out of your battery. Everything is there. Just search for Tech Talk on the new stock app powered by GoLoud. Uh, Derek, congratulations on a huge success uh, in terms of this event. I can't wait to see what you do next and we will chat to you next month. Thanks, Jess. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, Cameron Hill will join me for this month's book club. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. What 
a tune. Sadly, we're not playing it for the best of reasons, though. Uh, earlier this week, the mobile networks, including Vodafone 3 and Air, confirmed that they will once again be increasing their prices. This is something that I was talking about on News Talk Breakfast on Wednesday. It happens every year for the last few years. So the mobile networks will look at the consumer price index that has been published the previous January and then they'll add an extra 3% on top. So Vodafone says that this is for the ongoing investments they make into their mobile and fixed networks as well as other products and services. But it does mean that by April of this year, your phone bill will be going up quite a bit. Uh, We spoke to Dara Cassidy of Bonkers.ie a few weeks ago on the programme. If you missed it, go to the News Talk app, search for Tech Talk and listen back to that episode because he had some great tips in terms of saving money when it comes to your uh, mobile uh, provider in particular. So it is definitely worth shopping around because there's no point in paying out big money if you don't need to. If you can get all of the requirements for a significantly cheaper fee, why wouldn't you? Uh, so that is my top tip. Go back, listen to that podcast and uh, take the advice of Dara Cassidy of bonkers.ie. Now, as promised on last week's show, our book club is here. Well, part of our book club is here. Uh, Cameron Hill, how are you? Not too bad. I hear Kira was publicly shamed, so she's not here. That's it. Oh my God. Look at you being a professional broadcaster. <laughs> Wowee. Uh, so yeah, this month's book is one that I chose. Uh, it's John Ronson's So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Uh, now, this first came out in 2015, so it's an old enough book. But I wanted you guys to read it because the themes of it I think are as relevant today as they were when it first came out. Uh, and I'm also a huge fan of John Ronson. Have you read any other of his works before? I've never read him before, but um, I'm definitely going to. Mm. I was in a bookshop yesterday and was between a book that I'm reading at the moment and The Psychopath Test because I just, <gasps> I really enjoyed what he, just his his style and the flourish of the comic writing, which we can get into later on. But yeah, he, he really is captivating. He, he really is. So it's basically like a series of essays. If you've ever read anything in The New Yorker, it, it's that kind of style of mm. sarky, insightful, intelligent, thought-provoking essays pushed together in a book. And the commonality is... Uh, the theme of being shamed publicly, as the title would uh, let you believe. Um, I absolutely loved this book, as I knew I would. Uh, Before we get into the nitty gritty, what's your overarching thoughts and feelings on it? I really enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't find it particularly uplifting and I thought Mm. the resolution at the end didn't like it was still kind of dispiriting for me. Basically, the the solution is well, if you're rich, you can get rid of this. But um, a really fascinating thought exercise in the nature of shaming and the nature of public discourse in the age of social media. I was saying to you before we came on air, this book was written ten years ago at this stage, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. But it, it reads a lot like prophecy in how social media eventually develops into this dumpster fire. But um. It was it was fascinating just in terms of coming to terms of what the implications of what we do when we post online, whether we've made a mistake or we're criticizing slash attacking someone for making a mistake. Yeah. And I think the examples that are featured in the book were so intelligently selected 
because it shows the broad array of public shaming that can happen. Mm. And it also shows, I think, that nobody is really protected from it because you have people like one of the first examples is Ronson himself who you know these um, computer science nerds basically make a chatbot again they were ahead of their time impersonating John Ronson on Mm. Twitter he doesn't like it he gets a bit stroppy about it there's a confrontation and this kind of back and forth as to whether or not he is right or wrong for disliking it as well as the reaction of his followers when he posts the interview with the computer nerds online. You know, it's the moral quandary, I suppose, of who's right in that instance. Then we get on to an author of a book who essentially made up some quotes that were attributed to Bob Dylan or people relating to Bob Dylan and was found out by a journalist who, again, had the moral quandary of do I call this out or not? And I find examples like that so fascinating because there have been very famous examples. Uh, Brian, uh, is it Brian Williams in the US, the NBC anchor? Yes. He was found out a few years ago. Rocket helicopter thing in Iraq, yeah. He'd made up like incredibly detailed scenarios that just didn't happen when he was allegedly covering conflict zones. So this is the stuff we, I, I suppose my point is the examples in this book it's not just one type of person that could be publicly shamed. I think the point of the book is to show that it could happen to anybody at the drop of a hat and how you deal with it uh, is very much based on your personality, your mental resilience, your family and your friends and the support circle that you have. It's such a nuanced thing, I guess. Yeah, I was trying to think of what's the closest or most high profile Irish example and the one that i I came to that isn't perfect was the fallout for Maria Bailey mm-hmm. after everything that happened to her and look it's a different case there there are various differences between what she went through or her transgression versus the transgression of the people in the book but uh, it definitely contextualised just how brutal that shaming would have been online for her and the stuff she would have gone through and the stuff her family would have gone through and just how awful it can be and how um, closed off you feel from society and being able to speak like the passage where Jonah Lehrer is apologising and he can see people not buying it on a live kind of feed yeah, reflected in the screen and people saying oh he's a joke I can't believe this he's a sociopath that kind of thing just really hit home for me but I suppose to get into how the book is written I thought it was really smart that it was in the hands of someone like John Ronson to treat this topic. His sort of gonzo journalism style really lends itself to and communicates the deeper message is that behind every profile you talk to online and every person you criticise, there's a person there. There's a human element. What's refreshing about how he writes it is he he doesn't indict anyone any more than the others. He treats them quite equally. No transgression is worse than any other. And... It just hits on that human element that at the end of the day, we are all humans and it's hard to grasp that sometimes on social media. We just assume they're virtual characters. I can't remember where I read it, but I heard that someone described social media as the most successful video game of all time because it essentially is a scoring thing for mm. likes and follows. And the better you get at it, the more difficult it becomes in a way. But that human aspect is never lost in this book and really hit home for me. 
Yeah, me too. And something that I alluded to the day that uh, on our last book club conversation was just the notion of, I suppose, my own experience of social media. I've said on the show a million times now, I left Twitter in November of last year. But I'll never forget when I was 22 or 23, I started doing stuff on air here on Newstalk. So I used to be on with George Hook on a Monday. We'd talk about phones, we'd talk about video games and it'd be lovely. And there were two guys who just didn't like me. Mm-hmm. And they let me know they didn't like me on Twitter and they tagged me. And about 10 minutes before I'd go on air every Monday, they tag me and ask who I slept with to get on air or whose hyped up granddaughter am I? And then when I would go on air and talk about the phone or the video game or whatever, they would rip every single thing I said to shreds. Mm -hmm. They would go on to my Facebook, which was public at the time, and they'd find out where I went to secondary school and they'd make jibes about that. Or they'd go on to LinkedIn and see where I went to college and make jibes about that. And it was two people, but I found it so hard to deal with because it was the first thing I'd see in the morning and the last thing I'd see at night because it was on my phone. Mm -hmm. And... It was like, I remember I was still living at home at the time and I saw the day that they set up a boards form about me and I went over to my mum's bedroom and I was like, I'm going to tell Garrett, who was the editor at the time, that I'm going to quit because I don't want to do it anymore because it's just horrible. And that claustrophobic feeling of online bullying is horrific. But it's pathological in the way they do it in Mm. that they take every detail that you put online or that might be out there in the ether and they use that against you. It actually reminds me of that quote in Goodwill Hunting, I'll leave the expletive out, but where um, Robin Williams says, you you deigned to, you pretended to know everything about me because of a painting and you ripped my life apart. And that's, that's what social media does. There's a, it's a pathological obsession with every minute detail that can be used against you. And, There's plenty of instances in this book of how these people use that to attack someone who they feel from their own moral, their own moral compass and the general moral consensus that someone is in the wrong and we need to take them down a peg or two. Yeah, and I found the way Ronson writes in this book captures every element of that so well. Hmm. And what I really appreciated throughout every single one of the essays or the profiles that he does of these people is that he kind of seesaws or rocks back and forth in terms of deciding whether the public shaming was justified or not. Or he try, he plays devil's advocate very well, I suppose, is what he does. And he details his own thought process. But to go back to what you were saying a second ago, it just reminds you that there is a human being behind every dickish tweet that you put out into the world. Mm. So I remember like when Pat Kenny started working here and I really liked him, like straight away really, really liked him. I thought, geez, the amount of times I've seen people on Twitter taking a slap at him. Yeah. Or when Ryan Tuberty was presenting the Late Late Show. And you know the people used to live tweet the Late Late Show and just rip it to shreds. Mm -hmm. And you think, geez, like that's somebody's friend or brother or dad. You know, I, I kind of... I think social media made it too easy for us to disassociate human beings with the online commentary. Well, it just becomes Lord of the Flies in every scenario where there's always someone being burned at the stake because of something you mightn't even feel is morally questionable, but you just don't agree with. Mm. Like for all that, um, I was having this conversation with my friends when I was saying I was going to write this book and one of them made the point 
that it's entirely understandable yet remarkable that for all the power she has in the world, Taylor Swift has rarely said anything political. Mm -hmm. And part of that is, you know, her brand and everything, but also she would be attacked on all sides and knows that because that's the nature of social media and you can never actually say the right thing, especially when you get to an elevated position. One thing that was thrown into sharp relief for me with this book is how do we how do we manage shame? Mm. The shame is a powerful tool, but it's too often weaponized. And as Ronson talks about when he talks to psychologists later in the book, violence is shame turned into self-esteem. And you see that with people who are supposedly cancelled or attacked by the woke mob, that the backlash or the lashing out from them can be very severe and quite violent and volatile. But how do you use that for good? He mentioned that the speed sign that tells you your speed and if you're above or below, that gives you gives no one else that information, just you. But it's the idea of being seen to be speeding is enough of an incentive to stop. And there are there are positives to that level of shaming and keeping people in check. There has mm-hmm. to be some sort of moral code out there. But I did I think far too often it it just descends into chaos. Yeah. Well one of the conversations I had with a friend of mine recently is around the weight that some people give to the voices online and so like you're on air right and so if somebody says something to you in a YouTube comment or in a text or a WhatsApp note to the show whatever it is how do you weight that versus one of your friends or your family members going come here to me like and you know giving you actually constructive feedback because I have this dreadful habit of letting a text or a WhatsApp or a tweet or whatever it is ruin my day entirely. Yeah. When I know that if I met that person in the street, their opinion would mean jack all to me. Or they mightn't even say it to you. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. They have the protection of knowing that they're probably never going to meet you, that they can attack you from 50 miles away Mm. and let that sink and think about the destruction they've caused. That every potential tweet we send out is a potential nuclear bomb and can wipe out someone's confidence and really make them feel terrible about themselves. The Stasi analogy that he uses is really interesting towards the end of the book. And he uses that sort of old, if you resort to comparing something to the Nazis, his, it's a, you lose the argument. His style of argument is great. Mm. I really enjoy it. And that he dismisses and says, look, I know, but then breaks down why he thinks something is applicable. But he mentions the idea of constantly being watched and that's what social media is and why people are following us and that everybody is tracking every word we say. But one interesting part of the Stasi analogy is that everybody who was an informer for the Stasi felt they were doing good Mm -hmm. and felt that everyone else was doing it and it was this commonality. So (laughs) there's a reason to be optimistic in all this that maybe it is people holding people who are don't necessarily get the book thrown at them in the real world, hold them to account in some way or form. But yeah, I'd like to see that optimism maybe manifest at some point. Yeah, the last line of the book, I, I like. I basically went through with a pencil and I have half of the book underlined of things that I just think were so profound or thought provoking. But the last line in the copy that I have is that the great thing about social media was how it gave a voice to the voiceless people. Let's not turn it into a world where the smartest way to survive is to go back being voiceless. And I feel... 
and it's not just about me. I know from other people that I chat to as well. But I don't share on social media half as much as I used to mm-hmm. for fear of being told that I'm a dope, if not worse, or for fear of it being used against me down the line in some way. Because so many of us have lived so much of our lives online now that if you were to scroll through to my first ever tweet in April 2011, God knows what junk I was talking about. Mm. And I think that notion and the threat of being cancelled has made, not even being cancelled, but just being the target of a pylon, Yeah, has made some people go, do you know what, lads? It's just not worth it. I'm going to back away here. Yeah, or not worth it. But again, so many of us in this industry and in other industries, whenever we felt, oh, there's a pile on here and there could be people out for us, there's been advice to, okay, go back through your social media, delete anything that's even slightly problematic because even if it was written by 12-year-old you, it will be used and weaponized against you. Mm-hmm. And that's a terrifying prospect because, you know, right now I'm hyper aware of what I'm posting on social media. But back then it was somewhat consequence free. Yeah. <laughs> and it shouldn't be used to weaponize somebody. It's not legally binding. And yet it's still terrifying that it's out there. It's like knowing that there's a, a rat in the house, but not knowing how to find it. Yeah. I am also intrigued by, I suppose, the thing that there, there was a few times where I sat back and kind of laughed at the notion of this book because a lot of the stuff that happened on social media where people were caught out by sharing things online or whatever, it made me wonder what do we all get from posting online? And I say that as somebody who puts up stuff up on Instagram stories every six minutes. So like I'm part of it, mm-hmm. but it's just what need is it fulfilling in us? And is it is part of that then why it hurts so much when we don't get the love, the adoration, the likes, the retweets, the little heart emoji things on Instagram? You know what I mean? Like it, it's obviously a deep uh, psychological and sociological thing within us mm. that we need to share we need to be loved we need to be told we're funny and then when that doesn't happen it's just like death by a thousand knives well I think in an in an ironic sense it's probably pushed the need for more privacy in our lives and to keep things outside of the zeitgeist mm-hmm. one thing that always strikes me about social media is for all it all of its emphasis on individuality and you being your own profile. Most of the popular things that I see people do are are group activities in terms of their online activity, such as sharing a petition for X, Y, and Z, or any other sort of, and I don't like to use the term because I know people's intentions are well-meaning, but slacktivist kind of principles. And the the public shaming and public pylon is part of that because it's a sla- it's you slapping yourself on the back saying, we did that. Mm-hmm. We took that person to task and aren't we great for doing that in the same way, sharing a petition or sharing some sort of charity organization's post on your Instagram story is, in your mind, just as good as actually going out and volunteering. And that's well and good and it scratches people's itches. But in the same way, I think divorcing yourself from your online persona is probably something that is worth doing at some point. It made This book has really made me revisit how I use social media. But also, again, it's incredibly prescient because the amount of public shaming and pylons for various different topics over the last while um, have become much more severe. And I think if Ronson wrote this book today, he'd be like, geez, where do I begin? <laughs> yeah. 
Like, and I remember I was on Off the Ball breakfast with yourself, Jer, and I want to say Shane, maybe two years ago. And we were talking about um, Andrew Tate. Mm-hmm. And it kind of fell into a conversation then about QAnon and online conspiracy theorists. Yeah. And I suppose how people can be motivated and galvanized in online communities. And obviously they're both very negative examples, but there are brilliant examples of building communities online. And, you know, the friendships and the interactions that you can have online can be brilliant. And there's nothing to say that they're inauthentic. But I just think it's such a fine line between being part of something in the online world and then being part of a mob in the online world. Yeah. And who is there to police or help you navigate the the differences between the two, if you know what I mean? Mm. No, there's there's no way of policing it. Again, we've become our own police and that type of shaming, Nonsen uses that analogy constantly, is our version of the stocks. Mm. We feel that someone has transgressed, transgressed and we're going to fling rotten fruit in, or there's no rotten fruit uh, reaction on Facebook yet or Instagram. Yes. But I feel like that's coming. That <laughs> yeah. might be coming. If you're listening, Elon, get that done. Um, but yeah, we, we've become our own moral police and... That always, that always ends badly. Yeah. Always ends badly. And anything that has that, as much as we mightn't trust the real authorities sometimes, or they mightn't have our best intentions, when we're left to our own devices, it's not great either. Mm. Okay, so give me a star rating for So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. I think, I think nine, nine and a half. And Mm. I only do that because I never give tens. Okay. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Really, really enjoyed it. Again, the resolution wasn't particularly, there was no sort of uplift at the end of, look, aren't we all human? It was kind of a, we solved this problem because we were able to bury this person's story because mm-hmm. um, they use a reputation building site. Um, but fascinating. Definitely mm-hmm. mod- makes me want to read more of his stuff and more stuff on this more generally. Yeah. Well, I'd give it a nine as well. It's one of the most thought-provoking books in a good way. You kind of, like when I was going out from everyone's, I'd find myself thinking about the essay I'd just read mm. and mulling it over. And they're the, they're my favourite kind of books when you're trying to process and think about how you feel about it, yeah. which is a smart, it's a sign of your brain expanding, I suppose, which is a good thing. It's definitely a let it sit with you kind of book. Yeah. And it's great. And you've just got over that uh, public shaming of not liking hitchhikers, which was... Uh, we don't talk about tough, that stuff on going. this show. Thank you for your support. <laughs> uh, well, look, I would love to hear what you think. If you read it, you can email me techtalk at newstalk.com. If you haven't read it yet, again, it's So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. Uh, we will be back with another book club pick for you next month. It's Kira's turn to pick. So I need to find out what she's going to choose and we will announce it on the show next week. Uh, but for the moment, Cameron Hill, thank you so much. Thank you. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up in just a few minutes' time, John Fardy will be here with Screen Time. John, what's on the show? So, the great Jared Harris. People introduce him sometimes as son of Richard Harris, but he's a lot more than that. He's a fantastic actor. People know him from Mad Men, Chernobyl. He's in a new movie that's at the Dublin International Film Festival uh, called Reawakening, all about a missing daughter. And he's live in studio with me. Fascinating guy yeah. who's lived quite the acting life. And otherwise, we're also talking about the new movie Wicked Little Letters, which you'd be into because it's kind of like trolling. Back in the day in the 1920s. Like we were just letters. talking about with Cameron a second ago. Hey, I, I read your mind. And the great impressionist Al Foran chats about his favourite film.
awesome stuff. Yeah. Come here to me. Do you know what I was talking to a friend the other day? Come here to me. Now come out. Uh, I can't remember the last time I was in the cinema. Oh dear. I hate to hear this. How long do you think it was? I genuinely don't know. Like definitely. Did pre- you not go see Barbie or Oppenheimer? No, I saw an Oppenheimer at home. Still haven't seen Barbie. Cheney Mac. Cheney <laughs> Mac. It's definitely pre-pandemic, I think, that I'd been... Well, can, can, can I give you three? Go for it, chicken. All of us strangers, it may have just left the cinema, could be still on somewhere. Mm-hmm. The holdovers, absolutely remarkable. And I, I know it has gone, but just so it's not all highfalutin stuff, Wonka is adorable. I was really surprised. Really? How good it is. Yeah, and I thought it was a terrible idea, but it actually works very well. And there's a great quiz movie that's still on called Migration, if you wanted to take your niece or nephew. Just one of them. Because <laughs> yeah, the cinema's too expensive. Yeah, God. Okay, I might go to the cinema this week and report back. Uh, but if you want to talk to somebody or hear from somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. Yeah, don't invite to them to talk to me. I don't want any of that. <laughs> I was doing a fourth <laughs> If you want to hear someone who knows what they're talking about when it comes to movies, you can stay tuned to us here on News Talk because John will be here with screen time just after six. John, thanks very much. Thank you. All right, we just have enough time to dip into the uh, mailbag. I'm going to fly through these and see who has been in touch. Uh, First one is you spoke about a cheap Fitbit a while back, but I can't remember the name. Thanks so much. Uh, That is the Fitbit Charge 6. It's one of the best wearables out there. It has very sophisticated health tracking, health monitoring technology built in, uh, but it's a fraction of the cost. So it's around, like I've seen it uh, on sale a few times for 120 quid. I think the average price now is around 150, but I would absolutely recommend it. It is uh, very, very impressive. Next question, uh, the Pixel, Google Pixel 8 Pro or the Samsung S24 Ultra? That is from David. Uh, David, that's a good question. Both are excellent and they are the two or two of the highest end phones that you can get your paws on at the moment. Personally speaking, I think I prefer the Google phones. Um, I really like the design of them. I really love the camera on them. I think the camera is incredible. The battery life is great. Uh, The user interface is just completely clean and clear. Uh, So if it was my money, I would go for the uh, Pixel. That would be my thoughts and feelings. Uh, Bernie has been in touch. Last week, you were talking about fitness trackers. Will the Apple Watch work with a non-Apple phone? No. Unfortunately not. It needs to have the health app that comes on iPhones only. That lack of compatibility is an absolute pain. Uh, So I think if you want something that's similar, you could look at the Google Pixel Watch 2, which is a newer one. Uh, You could also look at something like the Fitbit Versa, the latest iteration of that. They look quite similar. They've got great tracking technology. Um, They are a little bit cheaper than the Apple Watch, but unfortunately, no, if you don't have an iPhone, they will not work. Uh, That is it, I think, for the moment. If you do have any tech questions, get them into me at any stage. You can email techtalk at newstalk.com or keep an eye out for the Instagram Q&A that I do every week. Uh, As I said a few minutes ago, John Fardy is up next here on News Talk with Screen Time. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday's News Talk Breakfast. But in the meantime, have a great weekend.